The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. So after a little bit of a hiatus, because everything else seems to get in the way sometimes, uh, we are up to episode 24. And there's really, I mean, it's been a quiet week, Sam. There's not a whole lot to talk about. No, I mean, we, we might as well, you know, cut this one off after about 10 minutes because, yeah. you know, frankly, nothing's happened today. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> today, Mark Fields got fired and there's all kinds of other stuff to talk about. But anyway, the first thing we're going to do is talk about what we've been driving. And Sam, you've been in the uh, Alfa Romeo Giulia Quadrifoglio and the Super Duty, but I think yeah. we'd rather talk about the... Uh, the quadrifolio because that hauls ass and the truck just hauls. So hey, absolutely. That's <laughs> hey, <a> very, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, the quadrifolio uh, or the Julia uh, rather is the first new volume product from Alfa Romeo, you know, uh, since uh, the announcement back in 2014 that they were going to launch uh, seven new vehicles by 2018. And somehow I suspect that they're not going to manage that. Unless um, they drop like a vehicle a month for the next six months. months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, th- this is the this is the first of their their new new platform vehicles. It's a, a rear wheel drive sports sedan. And this platform that the Julia rides on. Uh, it also forms the basis for the new Stelvio SUV that, that we saw first for the first time at the LA Auto Show in November. And it's uh, just about hitting the streets here in the U.S. now. Um, but the, the Julia, you know, is aimed right at the heart of the, you know, compact slash midsize uh, sports sedan market. I mean, this thing is, you know, right on the dimensions of cars like the BMW 3 Series and the Mercedes C-Class and the Audi A4. Really? It's that uh, small? I thought it was more like 4 Series size, like just slightly bigger. No, no. I mean, it, they're they're all within, you know, a couple inches of each other in length and wheelbase. Um, so, you know, it's 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 a fairly compact car on the outside. It's not real big on the on the outside, uh, but it, it's actually surprisingly roomy inside uh, the back seat. You know, it doesn't, the getting in the back, is uh you know the door the 
the portal is a, a little bit tight, so you've got to duck your head to get in. But once you're in there, you got plenty of head and leg room. That's not a problem. But frankly, that's not where you want to be in this car. Um, the for the U.S. market, the Julia is available with two different engines. The base setup is a 280 horsepower, two liter, uh, four cylinder turbo. But the Julia that you really want is the Quadrifoglio. So this is what makes me suspicious because I've read and seen lots of reports about the Quadrifoglio, which I it better be good because it's a seventy thousand dollar car. Yeah, the one I had stickered at seventy seven thousand. Yeah. Okay, so it's a seventy seven thousand dollar. That's obscene. Uh, Have you priced out an M three lately? Or no, an AMG C sixty three or C forty three. No, and they're, I get they're that, in the same sure. ballpark. Okay, but so you're launching your three series C class competitor, and you're sending out basically your your M three or your AMG uh, model, sort of as the tip of the spear versus. You know, the the more volume car that that makes me scratch my head a little bit. Like, what are they either? They're trying to hide something or they're trying to put their best foot forward. I mean, you can you can you can get the four cylinder Julia as well, you know, and that starts at just thirty eight thousand for rear wheel drive. So that's that's a a quick car. Yeah, that's a huge delta. And so I I will stop interrupting you and let you talk about the the (laughs) Julia Quadrifoglio. But I'm really, really interested in the non Quadrifoglio version, too. Well, I, I haven't driven it yet, but, you know, the specs on that one, you know, top speed of 149 and zero to 60 in about five seconds for 38 grand, which is, you know, it, again, it's in the same ballpark as the, the BMW and the Mercedes and, and the Audi, um, you know, 280 horsepower. You know, it's it's a it's a quick car, but um, the Quadrifoglio, you know, uh, Quadrifoglio going going back to the 1920s, um, Alfa Romeos have, have worn this. Um, cloverleaf badge on their fender for, you know, racing Alfa Romeos. And um, for many years, they've used it to denote the high performance versions of their street cars. Uh, and in this case here, you know, on the Julia Quadrifoglio, uh, it's got a 2.9 liter twin turbocharged V6 engine, direct injected, 505 horsepower and 484 foot pounds of torque, I think. So is that that's not a Pentastar derivative, right? That's no, this is this is a this is a completely different engine. It's a 90 degree V6, um, and uh, you know it was it was designed in you know with help from the guys at Ferrari and, and Maserati. Um, and I, th- I think this is this basically the same engine that you can find in um, in like the uh, uh, the the Maserati. Um, what is the smaller one? Uh, the Ghibli, the Ghibli, yes, yeah. the Ghibli, whatever. Ghibli, Ghibli, weird yeah. named car. Yeah. Anyway, um, it's a fabulous engine. Uh, you know, it's got tons of power, tons of torque. It's got a beautiful sound uh, when you that, step on it. Well, that's an odd fire V six too, right? I think they they make no bones about what that is, right? It's not. It doesn't yeah. have balance shafts or anything. So it, no. it's just it has that that ripping sound that an odd fire V six will have. Right. And, you know, at, at idle, you know, it's got that just that little bit of shake, you know, kind of like you get with a big V8 engine, you know, tell, you know, basically a heartbeat, you know, not not enough that it's annoying, just enough to tell you that it's alive and it, it's working, you know. And what what's really impressive, you know, is this this is a, a really easy car to, you know, aside from the price tag, it's a really easy car to use as a daily driver because, you know, just 
cruising around town. It's not particularly loud. You know, it doesn't beat you up. The, the, the suspension setup is fantastic. Um, you know, the ride quality is really, really good considering that this car is running on 19 inch wheels with 30, 35 and 30 series tires front and rear. Uh, you know, so, you know, these are these are not this is not rolling stock that, you know, you typically equate with a really plush ride, but they've done a really good job of setting it up so that, you know, it's got enough compliance that the wheels can move around, follow the road, but it maintains great body control. And, you know, unlike some cars I've driven recently, it doesn't get bouncy over over rough pavement. Um, you know, it, it maintains its composure, you know, pretty much at all times. Um, and then when you step on it, you know, then you hear the, you know, the engine just opens up uh, and it just sounds fantastic. And, you know, the, the one unfortunate thing is they decide, I guess that it, it, they were developing a manual transmission version. Um, and at some point they decided to drop that for the U.S. market. Uh, so we only get the the uh, ZF eight speed automatic that you'll find in many, many other cars in this segment uh, and in other segments. But uh, you know, I mean, it's, it shifts really fast, really smooth. Uh, you know, you've got the, the big long metal paddles that are mounted on the steering column rather than on the steering wheel, you know, so they're, they're always there. Um, and yeah, you know, it's just, it's a beautifully responsive car and it's just, really nice to drive and it looks great too i mean it's, it does yeah uh you know so in terms of it better have nice fit and finish and materials and you know those are the things that are going to make and break this car be, be, because it's unique enough that even if it has the that that bit of personality at this level personality is a good thing uh it, you know it separates it from the the even the, the sort of the the usual suspects uh but how does it feel build quality is it up to par yeah yeah i mean certainly on the one i drove you know uh fit and finish was excellent uh there were there were no um you know noticeable issues that i could see you know no misaligned panels or anything inside you know panel gaps looked even on the outside the, the paint finish was fantastic um you know so nothing from a quality you know from from driving it for a week there was nothing that i noticed that would be problematic um you know it certainly you know was in keeping with what you expect of a 70 plus thousand dollar car um you know the the only the only thing really i would complain about you know as is so often the case is the infotainment system was kind of mediocre and the the voice recognition for the navigation was extremely hit and miss mostly miss um but frankly you know with a car like this who cares about the navigation system? Just get in and drive. <laughs> well, you know, no, it no, I doesn't mean, matter if you don't if you don't know where you're going. Just drive. Right. That's that's our our take on it. Right. Is like uh, you're better off getting lost. But on the other hand, you know those those are things that are going to make a difference, especially when you're competing with Command and iDrive and uh, you know whatever other systems. If you're cross shopping some other car, I mean, I'm trying to think of what else you would cross shop against it. Uh, you know, and there's MMI. Yeah, I agree. That's probably it is the Germans. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or, or Cadillac Q. I mean, you know, the the uh, the ATSV, the Cadillac ATSV is the other obvious competitor in this segment. No, I haven't used Q in quite a while because I don't get too many Cadillacs um, at the moment. But uh, that's already an also ran or has that system been improved? Um, 
It's uh, for the 2018s. It's got a significant upgrade. Uh, it, the upgraded system launched on the, the refresh CTS a couple of months ago, and it's coming to most of the rest of the Cadillac lineup for the 2018 models this fall. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was, you know, it was a, it was an OK system. It wasn't the worst system out there. Um, you know, it just it wasn't as uh, responsive as you know as you would like you know sometimes it was a little slow to to respond to taps and things like that but the interface wasn't terrible yeah. um you know it was it was fairly typical um you know what you find on a lot of cars i've seen it's it was definitely far from the worst system out there um and you know this the system you know in the alpha you know it's not uconnect unfortunately which you know i think is a better system than what's in here um, but you know, it, it'll do, you know, it's, it's just not, it's not, let's put it this way. It's not my priority. Yeah. I mean, but, it's, it's a, my guess is that it's a Harman system. Uh, yeah, it is. It yeah. is a Harman Kardon system, uh, as, as are pretty much all FCA vehicles these days. Um, uh, you know, the, the thing that was really great, you know, amazing about this thing was you're driving on the highway and, you know, you, you squeeze the throttle. Uh, to go past somebody and it's the acceleration was just so effortless and it it's deceptively fast you know like when i drove the nissan gtr a couple of years ago you know this thing was brutal you know or or even the alpha 4c last summer you know it they were they were much more brutal you know when it kicked in and started to accelerate i mean you really felt it you know um and in this one it's just all of a sudden you glance down and you have a lot more velocity than you had just a couple of <laughs> seconds ago. And I'm not going to say just how much velocity, just enough, enough, but, but, but uh, it was significantly more than what I started with, you know, within the span of a couple of seconds. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it, it just felt, you know, it's, it's a really great car that you can, that's really fast and fun to drive, but it's also very livable. So that also brings me to the next question. Uh, you know, like so many cars in this class these days, it has switchable drive modes. Um, did you try out the advanced efficiency or, you know, natural? I guess natural is sort of the, the mode it's going to boot up in maybe. But uh, did you yeah, try any of those? Natural, natural is the one it boots up in. I kept it in uh, dynamic mode uh, most of the time uh, or sport mode. I think whatever, whatever. The, yeah, dynamic the and up. then there's race. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's race mode. But since I didn't have a track to to drive it on, you know, I didn't I didn't didn't really need that one in dynamic mode. Um, you know, it allows enough slip, you know, of the back end, you know, when you accelerate out of a corner that you can you can kick it out, you know, fairly easily um, and have some fun with it without getting yourself into too much trouble, you know, or looking like too much of a hooligan on public streets. Um, so, you know, it was it was it was fun. Yeah. And, and did you try advanced efficiency at all? Which actually, so it 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 shuts. It has cylinder deactivation and, and stuff, which I, I was impressed that they're putting that on this car. And I just was wondering what kind of economy gains you actually get out of it. Uh, I didn't even look at the fuel economy. <laughs> I didn't didn't really care. Who cares? <laughs> but yeah. but um, it does it does have uh, auto stop start, um, which works surprisingly well. Um, you know, and uh, you can you can turn it off. You know, but driving around town, you know, it's where, you know, you're not going to be hopefully not doing, you know, um, drag race starts at every intersection. 
um, you know, it, it's fine. It, you know, it's as good as any other, any of the, the latest current systems that are out there, you know, restarts fairly quickly. Uh, by the time you move your foot from the brake to the gas pedal, the engine's already running and you're, you're ready to go. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we could use another car in this class. It is, it is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, both inside and out. Um, their advertising is terrible. So that's, they're working against the tide on that. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'm never going to say no to more high performance luxury European sedans because that's I mean, that that's the sweet spot for me, having bought all the cast offs of the plutocrats back <laughs> in the day. <laughs> Seriously, I'm I'm actually quite looking forward to uh, trying out the Stelvio um, when those get into the fleet, uh, you know, because it's it's on the same platform, um, you know, but it's got, you know, a five door hatchback body style. Uh, you know, it's, it's a crossover sort of, um, you know, and it's only slightly taller than the, than the quadru- than the Julia. Um, so it, uh, from what I've heard, it's actually really good to drive as well. This is the, is this the Giorgio platform? Um, I think so. That, yeah. yeah, I think, I think it is. Yeah. Weird names, but, um, yeah, yeah I, I mean, my hope too, is that, uh, because this, this, this platform is supposed to serve as the basis for new new dodge and chrysler vehicles as well so maybe maybe they can replace their 15 year old machinery that that would be a good thing you know i you know a a new uh charger or uh built off of this platform would would actually be quite a good thing i think yeah well i you know what before i jump to my very similar week I also want to hear about the the Super Duty, which um, yeah, you know, that, okay. that's uh, you know it follows the mold of the the F series. It's gotten some of those updates. Yeah, so um, I uh, last week I dropped off the Stelvio at the airport when I was flying to San Francisco for a few days for a uh, uh, car uh, conference on autonomous vehicles that I was speaking at. And when I came back, I got uh, the uh, F two the new F two fifty Super Duty, uh, the twenty seventeen model, which. Uh, the new Super Duties like the, the Light Duty F-150s uh, now have an all-aluminum body uh, and bed uh, on a high-strength steel frame. You know, it's all, all the, the same same kinds of upgrades that or downgrades, depending on your perspective, that um, the, the Light Duty trucks already got. Um, you know, gave them some extra fuel economy, reduced the weight by several hundred pounds. Uh, and the one I'm driving uh, has the uh, the 6.7 liter Power Stroke uh, diesel. Um, why why is it they can't give good engine good names like that to their gas engines or or even to their cars for that matter? What was the EcoBoost supposed to be? It was supposed to be. Um, it was originally the uh, Twin Force. Yeah, that's a much better name. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, so you know the the timing of this one worked out uh, quite fortuitously uh, as I was building a new uh, deck in my backyard. Uh, so having a, a big big honking diesel pickup truck that with a nearly four thousand pound payload capacity and fifteen thousand pounds of towing, you know, was good for hauling a lot of pressure treated lumber back to my yard. All those bags of concrete for the footings and everything. That too. Yep. Yeah. Bags, bags of cement and. Lots of lumber and other stuff, uh, hauling all that stuff back and forth from Lowe's. Um, yeah, it worked, worked out quite well. And, you know, I mean, the, the, this truck doesn't even flinch. It is pretty tall. Um, you know, when you're loading those big, you know, 12-foot uh, two-by-sixes into uh, the back of the bed, um, it, uh, you know, it's you got to lift them up a bit to get them into that bed. Uh, but, you know, the, 
the it didn't you know the springs didn't even seem to flinch at the the weight of all those uh pieces of wood in there so well you probably weren't anywhere near the payload i mean that's the thing too like the f-150 is sort of like the bread and butter truck but really you if you want to actually do work with your f-series you kind of have to get to the f-250 um that's yes not necessarily no, I suppose, but. yeah it, i mean it, it depends i mean you know you can you can tow twelve thousand pounds with an f-150 um with the uh with the three five eco boost or with the five liter that's true um, the eco boost is really uh i feel like that engine has been revolutionary in trucks just because it it just it it mops the floor with the v8 yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the in the F-150, I think you get a maximum payload of about 2000 pounds. So this one, you know, this is the the F-250 is the entry level of this, the heavy duty pickups. So, and uh, the payload with the diesel uh, is around thirty eight hundred pounds, you know, which is a lot, except that, you know, the, the one downside of the one I have, it's a crew cab short wheelbase. So it's only a six foot bed. Um, so, you know, longer pieces of lumber are hanging out the back, uh, or six and a half foot bed. Um, you know, so it's, you know, basically, unless you load it up with nothing but cement, you're going to have a hard time putting 4,000 pounds in this thing, uh, for payload. Uh, but it's got 15,000 pounds of towing capacity. So if you, if you need some, some serious towing, but if you're going to, if you're going to be hauling, um, bigger, payloads uh you definitely want to go for the longer bet you know one of the versions with the longer bed either the the extended cab um with the the eight foot bed or the crew cab with an eight foot bed which gets you a ridiculously long wheelbase of i can't even remember how long it is i think it's like 150 inches or 145 inches something like that that's so long yeah um how did you find the the 6.7 liter power stroke it's 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 all of these trucks are now ridiculous with their their torque numbers too. This is nine hundred and twenty five pound feet of torque. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's so much that you don't even you don't even notice anymore. It just it doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, whatever. It, what, whatever, whatever you whatever you need to do, you know, it can handle it. You need to pull a house around, no problem. You know, sure. just get a just get a hefty enough chain and you're good to go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, leaving yeah. first gear. Well, yeah, you, you know, you need to deforest your backyard. You know, no sweat. <laughs> um forget the chainsaw just wrap a chain around the trunk and strap it to the back of the truck and you're good to go well you know it's an interesting engine it was it was interesting um the la- for the last podcast uh talking with uh, uh gm's engineer for their their new uh duramax um and just seeing that you know the diesel v8 is is still fertile ground for innovation um this power stroke this 6.7 it it has a a hot v like some of the mm-hmm. higher performance engines from, uh, you know, like BMW. So the turbocharger is actually in the middle of the the engine versus, you know, a pair of turbochargers hanging off the side or one large one with lots of exhaust plumbing. It seems like the way everybody's going with a turbocharged V8, whether it's diesel or uh, gas, is to to reverse the flow from what the convention was. Yeah, you know, from a, from a packaging standpoint, um, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, to put the V or to put the, the turbo in the V of the engine and then, you know, run the, uh, you know, because then you've got, 
you know, really incredibly short runners from uh, from the uh, exhaust ports right into the turbocharger. And then it feeds uh, from the output of the compressor through the intercooler and over the heads and into the uh, intake ports on the outside of the heads. Um, and, you know, this is the, the 6.7 liter, you know, is an interesting engine Ford introduced it, I think, in 2009 or you know, 2009 to replace uh, the old Navistar uh, diesel V8s that they used to use. And this was this one was designed in house and in its original iteration, it had a very interesting turbo design. What they did was um, the, the turbo had one um, turbine, which is driven by the exhaust gases. Um, and then it had a double compressor wheel. So um, the compressor, the compressor was like two compressor wheels back to back. Um, and so it was a smaller diameter with less inertia um, and it responded more like a twin turbo setup, but it was within a single housing. Oh, I remember so was, that. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of an odd design, but, but like you were saying, because there's not that much mass with the smaller compressors, it's it, it will, it'll spool faster. Right. Because that's one of the things that I remember about the the older uh, Duramax was, boy, there there was noticeable turbo lag with that. So, yeah. Uh, so um, a couple of years ago, they I think about in 2014 or 15, they updated the engine. They, they did a refresh on the engine. And this was before the new Super Duties came out, uh, you know, gave it more power, more torque. And they swapped out the turbo for a more conventional uh, one, a very, it's a variable vane turbo. So you've got, you know, variable intake. So you still get a lot, a lot of those benefits, uh, of being able to control the, uh, the spool up so you can you know, reduce the turbo lag. Uh, but it's a single compressor wheel now. Uh, and, um, it, it works really well, you know, and, you know, this is a surprisingly quiet engine. It doesn't have, you know, any of the, the diesel clatter that you typically expect. I mean, I'm sure it's got lots of, um, sound insulation around it and everything but it's it's still it's still a surprisingly refined engine yeah and i'm and sure it's getting about 15 miles per gallon oh, around town see, i was just gonna say but you didn't care about fuel economy but you you did with the diesel truck funny you did you didn't yeah. with the high performance sedan <laughs> i guess you get your priorities in order that's fine well you know it, it just you know the fuel economy gauge just happened to be up you know in the uh, instrument cluster already you know <laughs> so i could see what it was doing they uh uh, I think it, you know, there was there was something somewhere in the, you know, if you page through the stuff in the uh, in the alpha, but you know, I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> so, what was the trim level of this? Did it have was this it, is a lariat? Yeah, so it was it had leather and stuff, right? Like it's got it's got leather and tons and tons of chrome. Uh, very, you know, it's black with lots of shiny chrome on the grill and on the uh, tailpipes and the wheels and the running boards and several other places. Uh, and it's like $66,000. So, you know, this is, this is not a cheap truck. You know, it's, it's a truck that, you know, you buy because you, you need the capabilities of a truck like this. But that's not that it's, that's actually cheaper than I thought it might be, because that's one of the things that has astounded me lately as well is that just the price of the heavy duty pickups or even just the regular pickups. When you start to option them up, they get abusively expensive. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's easy to get a light duty pickup, you know, well over 50 grand. And with these heavy duties, I think the last time I had uh, a super duty, you know, back in like 2010, it was an F450 dually. <laughs> and that one was, you know, that one was almost 80 grand. Yeah, it was it was a king. It was a king ranch. I mean, 
you know, it's, Jesus. it's insane. <laughs> I I like I it's interesting to drive those trucks, but also they're just man, I I don't live anywhere near where that's like a vehicle that gets seen on the road all that much in terms of, you know, practicality or, you know, like you just like these are these are mostly sold in Texas. Yeah. You've got to be working. You've got to have that truck like put to work. Yeah. Uh, and and there's a legitimate use for them and they're excellent. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so. I mean, you know, if you, if, you know, if you got a, a big, you know, 15,000 pound trailer, you know, trucks like this are, you know, what you need to move them. And, you know, if you opt for, uh, uh, you know, a fifth wheel trailering package, you can get up to, I think, I think mm-hmm. on the 250, I think you can get up close to 20,000 pounds or maybe it's over 20,000 pounds with a fifth yeah, wheel. Just, you know what? With the fifth wheel, they'll tow whatever the hell you want, wherever the hell you want it. And it's like. Well, the you know, the, the current generation of heavy duty pickups, um, if you go up to like the 350s and 450s with the dual rear wheel axle, um, you know, those things will tow close to 30,000 pounds now. That's crazy. I know. It's, I mean, so and the point is, too, like with with the luxury, like this is a lariat and you still above that is what uh, platinum and King Ranch or King Ranch and platinum or titanium or whatever the four. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure which trim levels they're offering these days on the super duties. Yeah. But yeah, you know, between the light duties and the super duties. Yeah, you've got King Ranches and platinums and limiteds. And yeah, uh, it's yeah, they're which, but, I, you know, it's it funny. Last year at uh, the 2016 Chicago Auto Show, um, Mark Lenev, the uh, uh, VP of uh, marketing, sales and marketing at Ford, uh, did the uh, the keynote at the opening of the show. <clears throat> and he was talking about um, sales of pickup trucks. And, you know, he said at that time, fully one third of all um, F-series pickup truck sales were these premium trim levels like the the limited, the Raptor, um, the Lariats and the uh, King Ranches uh, and the Titaniums. One third. Well, of course they yeah. are. And, and and these things are, you know, I mean, you, you look at these things, you know, and you're talking 15, 20, 25 thousand dollars of pure profit on every one of those things they sell. And they sell, you know, six, seven hundred thousand of them a year between the the one fifties and the super duties. Yeah. I mean, it stands to reason. That's what I was going to say was if you're putting these things to work, why do you have to suffer for it? You know, like if you're towing a heavy trailer, you know, a long way, uh, why shouldn't you be able to opt to do that in, you know, a crew cab with leather? And that's relatively quiet and comfortable. I, I don't see any problem with that. So right now I'm, I'm just looking at the Ford webs, Ford.com website and uh, on the Super Duties, it goes uh, from XLT to King uh, to Lariat to King Ranch to Platinum. Um, they ha- and then on the 150s, they also have a limited trim level in there between the uh, just below Platinum. Uh, but the 2017 F450 Platinum starts at seventy seven thousand dollars. <laughs> right. So the, if you have the means, I highly recommend it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, well, good. We can stay with Ford. This week, I'm driving a Shelby GT350R. It goes away tomorrow. Um, and you'll be crying when it leaves, right? I'll I'll be a little sad. Um, this is a hell of a car. Um, in the past, I haven't been all that enthusiastic about Shelby Mustangs just because they've been big engine pigs. 
um, with all that's of, one way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, certainly they've been high performance Mustangs, but they've been high performance Mustangs. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Where this is this is an all out. This is a sports car, like a legitimate high performance uh, sports car. I, you know, like you were talking about the the odd fire V six in the Julia. Um, this flat plane V eight is absolutely bonkers it just it comes it, it's no slouch below 4000 rpm but it really comes alive at 4000 rpm and so there are times you're you're driving you're like oh i have to shift and you look down you're like no no no, no. i got like half of the tack left uh <laughs> and it's it just has this this sound yeah, I mean, not not so long ago who could have imagined a mustang with an 8250 rpm red line yeah and 526 horsepower and it just and it does it wails like a racing v8 because of the the firing rhythm um and it, it does it makes everything in the car you know vibrate when you get it wound up past 7000 but you know again past 7000 that's just, it's just an impressive engine um and it, it has the switch for a like extra obnoxiousness uh to open up the the exhaust um baffles so of course that's that's how i commuted and stop and go traffic through all of the the very very tony neighborhoods of uh you know metro boston um, i'm just tearing through not even tearing like you just go in normal speed but you just you leave it in like second gear and you toddle along at like 30 miles an hour and the thing is just like roaring and spitting and snarling and it's it's just it's the it's the best um and it's it's a it's a real performance car you know it 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 just it goes like a bastard (laughs) yeah I, i remember the first time i heard one of the prototypes um in Dearborn, I, I was across the street from the uh, the proving grounds in Dearborn, and I saw one of the prototypes coming out of the gate, and the you know the driver pulled out of the gate and then just stepped on it going down Oakwood Drive, and holy shit, <laughs> that thing was just unbelievable. Yeah, it is so loud. So <laughs> like on Friday, I'm driving home. I pull off the highway, and you know, the dude pulls up to me next to me. Um, and it's like just some young guy in a beat up minivan. He goes, that sounds amazing. There was an expletive in there as well. Uh, and he's like taking a video with his phone and he's like, can you, can you rev it up for me? And so, you know, I'll take off from the light and first gear again. I will say this is one of those cars like the Hellcat that I had a couple weeks ago that you you have to treat it with respect or it will absolutely bite you. And there's so many videos of Mustangs going into crowds. I did not want to be that guy. Um, and it's, it was very easy to break traction in, in first and second gear. If you, you accelerate too hard, uh, it's a very benign chassis until it's not, you know, once you get it crossed mm-hmm. up, you're, you're in real trouble. Um, Cause otherwise y- 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 the signs are there. If, if something, you know, if it starts to get loose back off, it backs off gracefully. It's fine. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a real, really well set up car. Uh, I didn't like how the, the steering's kind of numb. Uh, and I think that's just a Mustang thing, uh, with the steering. It's, it doesn't communicate quite as well. And that's partly because it's the electric power steering that they've got. Uh, you know, some systems are better than others. This one's not that great in terms of road feel. Um, and it, it seemed to 
to pull like opposite of what I would expect. Uh, so I don't know if it's just the way the the chassis is aligned and the way the system is is designed to you know have the steering counteract some road crown and stuff because I know that's that's one of the things that Ford does with their their E pass system. Um, mm-hmm. But that you know so that was weird. It would tram line a lot. Um, so it it's it's a handful of a car in some ways. But the other thing that really astounded me was just how much of a just an easy car to drive it is uh you know the clutch take up is really progressive it's it's a light clutch it's not heavy uh you can leave it in sort of normal mode with that you can set the steering to comfort and it it doesn't drive too far off from you know a five liter mustang which again that's a car that you certainly it's a little bit beastie you know that's got it's got power to it and you have to drive it accordingly but it, yeah, it's it's not really that difficult to drive. And then, you know, performance wise, it's it's up there with, I don't know, like a Corvette. I don't think there's I don't I haven't really compared the numbers all that closely, but it's this is a serious performance car. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and, you know, it's designed to be, you know, it, it was designed to have a very different character from the GT 500s, you know, that we've had you know over the, the prior decade. Um, you know, the GT 500 was always more of you know it was a car that you know it could you could take it on the track on a road course but it was really more of a a drag race car um you know with its big supercharged you know five liter v8 or you know 5.4 liter v8 was it yeah Yeah, i think it was 5.4 yeah yeah Yeah. um you know and you know i mean that was it was a big heavy engine in the front of the car um, especially in the, the earlier days, like when it first came out in 2007 through about 2010 or so, um, those, you know, they, they took, you know, they started with the engine from the, uh, the previous generation Ford GT and, but they didn't have, um, they didn't have enough cooling capacity in the Mustang to deal with the, you know, to protect the aluminum block. So they, um, used an iron block, a cast iron block in that thing. So, I mean, it was like, you know, 3,900 pounds, almost 4,000 pounds for the GT 500. It, it was a, you know, it did not handle all that well, but once they switched to an aluminum block, you know, dropped 150 pounds off the front axle, it got a lot better, but you know, this one, you know, going naturally aspirated, you know, and just a, a high revving monster, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a really impressive car. I just love the the naturally aspirated V8 too. You know, I've driven my personal cars for twenty years were turbocharged. I just I just love this the the linearity of of the naturally aspirated V8, and I I also love superchargers again because they're linear. You know what you're getting, mm-hmm. um, and it, it's just yeah, it's a really fun car to drive. It's set up really well. Uh, you know, the Recaro seats are great. They hold you nice and, and snug. Um, I can see how that might actually be a little difficult to get the exact position because they don't power adjust. They so there's, you know, there's that certain like seat back angle that may be in between the two notches that you're going to have to deal with that kind of stuff. Um, it's definitely mean looking uh, and it's it's low. Uh, you got to got to kind of watch the front uh, the, the front splitter on stuff so you don't chew that up. Um, and you know, if I'm gonna give it any kind of criticism, it's it's that you know the Mustangness is still there, uh, the, and so that's not I, that's not a fair critique, right? Like in the Mustang, the the interior feels cheap at forty thousand. Well, guess what? At seventy thousand, which is what this car costs, it feels a little extra cheap. Um, but 
what are you going to do? I mean, that's kind of, that's what it is. It's like, a Mustang. Yeah, they're not going to give it like a pimpy interior. All the money went into the right places. <laughs> you know, it went yeah, into it's, the, it's all it's all in the powertrain. Yeah, and the powertrain is just fantastic. It's the the the, the five point two liter engine and the the I think it's a Tremec uh, six speed is just yeah it it wor- all works really well. Um, I there's no other car they have that could could take this powertrain. So take it for what it is. It's, and it, you know this is the the first volume production car in the world with um carbon fiber wheels. Oh, are uh, they carbon fiber wheels? I didn't yeah. even notice. Huh. Yeah, they're they're carbon fiber. Uh they save uh I think they save about uh 15 pounds per corner. That's huge. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's 15 pounds at the wheel, you know, unsprung mass. That makes a huge difference in the way the car rides and handles. It's I mean it, uh, it yeah, it handles like a it's it's a weapon. It's certainly precise. Um it, yeah, this, this, this is great. And ta- <laughs> when when you go when you go outside, take a look um inside the wheel um in the interior of the rim uh behind the spokes you'll see that there's a, a white coating on the the interior of the wheel rim um and that's actually a ceramic coating to protect the uh the carbon fiber wheel from the heat of the brakes to to reflect the the heat of the brakes away from the wheel huh they, they did some very interesting stuff on this. It's only on the front wheels, but because um, the, the rears obviously don't do as much. But you know, this thing's got huge brakes. It does. Uh, the huge fif- Brembo calipers. Fif- yeah, fifteen-inch rotors and six-pot calipers on there. Um, you know, so I mean, it's got some some serious stopping power in addition to its acceleration. So, I'm I'm a little fuzzy on what the pricing is for this because uh, on the, I have the Monroni here and it's. So it looks like base price for the GT three fifty R is forty seven. That's for the the three fifty, not for the R. Okay, so the R is the extra thirteen five. Yes, on top of it. Okay, um, right. So for for the for the extra thirteen grand, you lose the rear seat and and a bunch of other stuff. Right, it, and it does have. The, I I really liked the like the Alcantara wrapped steering wheel and, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Like the rear seat delete, it, it's kind of a useless rear seat anyway. Uh, so it's yeah, sort of better much. That, that you don't have it. Um, yeah, I think you probably get the torus and differential and the track apps and stuff with with the R. Um, I, so yeah, I, and I think this, the standard, or at least when it launched, I think they, they may have changed it for 2017. But when it launched, the uh, standard setup with the R is you didn't get um, AC or uh, an audio system either. Oh, so they charge you to put it back. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's that's exactly what they that's did. That's the, tech, the technology package. Right. It's $3,000. It adds back the uh, AC and the audio system and navigation, which had Sync 3, which was pretty good um so yeah that's that's funny <laughs> like that's a very porsche move and that, that's i mean it's a very porsche kind of car in that that sense um is, is your is the one you have a 2016 or a 2017 this one is a 2016 okay <laughs> yeah because the, the seven the 17s um they actually increased the price. They they did some reconfiguration. Uh, so like on the in, in 2016, the first model year, the um, MR dampers, the the uh, Magna Ride dampers yeah. were only available on the R. They weren't uh, they weren't on the the base 350. 
and they made those standard across the board for 17 and there was some other things so the base price of the 350 went to 56 grand for 17 and then the 350r jumps up to 63 wow that's like yeah. a ten thousand dollar increase in it i mean we're getting very uh here. no it's uh seven seven thousand huh it's, either way i mean just the, the regular shelby gt350 is a that's a steal at 56 oh, yeah i mean when you consider the performance that that car offers you know it's it's actually not a bad price at all no and even the r like i honestly can't think of a car that can touch this at sixty-eight thousand, which is what this one stickers at. like again like maybe the corvette but they're two different things and you know a sixty-eight thousand dollar corvette is not not really the not as weaponized as this car is you know you're looking at you're looking more at like a z06 to get something is sort of as as extreme, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I may be maybe off my rock. Uh, with that, prob- probably a Grand Sport. Yeah, maybe a Grand Sport. Grand Sport's probably more apt. Uh, yeah. um, the current the current G, the C seven Z 6 is you know the, they're the supercharged. You know they've got the LT four. Yeah, that's a little. In there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're quite a bit more. That's that's more the the Z six now is more like what the ZR one yeah. was in the last generation. So. That's just Dan showing his old man side. <laughs> Back yeah. in my day, the Z06 <laughs> was the one in between. Now it's the Grand Sport. All right. So All right. we've had so, a good so, car week. Yeah. And, um, but n- not everybody at Ford has had a great week. No, um, not at all. <laughs> like, last week, the week started off with reports that uh, Ford was going to lay off 10% of its staff uh, worldwide. And that, that turned, turned out to be a little bit off the mark. Uh, it was more like 10% of their salaried staff. Yeah, well, which, and they didn't really get in front of that story either because a lot of it was sort of early retirements too, right? Yeah, it most it's mostly early retirements and, you know, voluntary uh, separations, as they call them. Uh, <laughs> you know, such, basically, such you know, pay, 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 paying you to go, paying people to go away. Um, and, uh, you know, so uh, it, it turns out that the, um, the first two people that uh, got their um, – so-called voluntary separations uh, were uh, the CEO <laughs> and the vice president of communications for Ford, uh, Mark Fields and Ray Day. Uh, and those were announced uh, this early, early this morning. So, and this has caused quite a stir uh, as you might uh, expect among the automotive news, but also just the regular news. Uh, and it's a little bit unclear why exactly this move was made. Certainly there's, there's been conjecture that, Ford has had issues with messaging uh, and sort of telling their story and that they they lag behind uh, what GM and even Chrysler are doing in terms of partnering up with other companies and trying to find the way forward with the the future the way forward. That was one of their taglines. Interesting, Dan. Um, yeah, that, that was the one that Mark Fields came up with back about uh, 13 or 14 years ago. So but, but they they haven't really uh, been as aggressive at uh, transforming the themselves into that mobility company that Mark Fields himself had talked about. But I think that's actually not true. Um, they've that, yeah, I think that that's the perception is that they haven't been as aggressive. Yeah, but they have, that, they've been, they've, they've made smart moves. Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think that, so it seems like now there's, there's a lot of pylon that, well, oh, Mark Fields just wasn't doing it. And I, I don't, I don't know that that's, that's really true. And, and, you know, I heard, um, Dan Neal on, uh, uh, marketplace today on my, my drive home. And, you know, he sort of made the, the same point was, 
you know, uh, this is mostly a stock price driven move because, uh, you know, he delivered record profitability for, for two years, at least two or three years for Ford, uh, during his tenure. Uh, and he did make smart, cautious investments in new technologies and, and partnered up with a lot of, uh, you know, companies doing this, this new work for what everybody sees as the coming sort of autonomous car, uh, future um so it's like he was doing everything right but the the line from from ford and from bill ford himself almost everything well right he's clearly he wasn't doing everything right uh but he was <laughs> you know in, in terms of what a uh you know what a shareholder could expect you know record profits is, it's not too bad um and then you know bill ford's and you know and very high dividends ford pays a lot of money in dividends on their stock no i didn't know that Oh, yeah, they have they have a surprisingly high dividend, Um, you know, so, you know, if you're a Ford shareholder, yeah, okay, maybe the price of your stock is not going up very much or, in fact, has gone down almost 40 (laughs) percent over the last three years. Um, But um, you're still making a lot of money through the dividends on that stock. So was that the thing, though, like while they're having record profits, the the share price is down. And so that that causes scrutiny from the, the shareholders like, hey, why is this the, the share price down if you guys are killing it as you say you're killing it? Um, yeah, I mean, that was certainly a big part of it, um, you know, and, and just for reference, you know, even this year, you know, in what is you know projected to be a down year for the industry. I mean, la- the last two years. The industry, you know, in the U.S. sold 17 and a half million cars each year. And this year is probably going to be somewhere around 16, 7, between 16, 7 and 16, 9, I think, is the current projection. Yeah, but that's okay, so like, is, that's not a down. I mean, well, from, from the okay. last two years, any year is going to be it's, down, it's down, it's, it's down from the peak. Right. Okay, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. So, but in, in this, you know quote unquote down year. Okay. And, you know, Ford has said, you know, that their profits will, you know, their after tax profits will likely be down, but they're, they've projected that their pre-tax profits for 2017 are going to be about $9 billion. Just for reference in 2016, Tesla's total revenue, not their, not their profit or loss, their revenue, the total amount of money they brought in was $7 billion. So Ford is going to make in a down year is going to make more in pre-tax profits than Tesla's total revenue for 2016. So, you know, that it kind of tells you how crazy this whole thing is, uh, you know, and but, you know, the, I think the you know, for for some reason, the, the financial markets just can't seem to wrap their head around the idea of supporting a company, you know, that actually makes physical stuff. You know, employs people making physical stuff and sells it to people for money. <laughs> you know, well, the, the they, they, they can't they can't seem to wrap their heads around that concept. You know, instead, you know, they they'd rather buy up shares of a company that sells dis- you know, an app to do disappearing messages and put funny things on your face and, hey, and selfies. It's, it's magical fairy dust. Uh, you yeah. know, Bill, Bill so, Ford's line was actually really confusing to me was he just kept sort of repeating, um, you know, we need we need faster decision making. I was like, I don't I don't know that that's necessarily what you really do need. If you're, you know, a global auto manufacturer, you don't you don't necessarily want you want right decision making, not necessarily fast decision making. Well, I I think, you know, part of part of the messaging we heard today was kind of um, they, they were clearly appealing to to the market, to the to the financial markets. Because, you know, they're, they're trying to 
um, you know, get some support to raise the stock price for, you know, the, the reality of the situation of why fields left today. Well, actually it's, it's important to remember that Mark Fields is not the only one who left the house today. It, it was also Ray Day. Ray uh, Day has been the head of communications at Ford for the last decade. And uh, he's a controversial figure um, <laughs> with certainly within the, the automotive media. Um, not everyone agrees with um, some of the things he's done. And one of, you know, one of the, the things that, has hit forward in the past year in particular during the, the election campaign last year, um, there was, you know, uh, Donald Trump actually, you know, obviously took a lot of shots at Ford for, you know, moving, you know, their plans to move production of the Ford focus from Michigan to Mexico. Um, you know, and, uh, from what I've heard from, from people, um, you know, Bill Ford was not at all pleased with the way, the company responded uh, to those attacks from Trump. Um, you know, he, th he thought that, you know, the company should have been much more aggressive in responding to that and um, really telling the story of what was actually happening. You know, they were, they were moving production of the, the folk of the small cars, which were declining in sales to Mexico where, you know, they could hopefully produce them more profitably. And at the same time, the plant where the Focus is built today, the Focus and the C-Max is built today, is, is going to be retooled to build the new Ranger and Bronco, which are High probably profit. going to be significantly more profitable right. than the Focus or C-Max will ever be. I mean, I don't care who the president is. The president, you know what? You go president. So like, leave, leave the global car manufacturing to the global car manufacturers. If they need to relocate, if they need to move a product from a, a U.S. plant to a... a you know, plant in Mexico, which is one of our NAFTA partners um, for now. Yeah, for now. It, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's just the, the, the amount of uh, trips, you know, to and fro, uh, you know, across the border to build a single car. When you consider all the parts that are in it and the different suppliers, like it, it's really like that's a final assembly point. It doesn't it, it changes a little bit. Obviously, it, it, it changes a lot, actually, but it's still both sides of the border benefit from that. You know, it's like, no, you're, you're, abs you're absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole way, you know, the whole, the whole way, the, the issue of um, where cars are built was politicized over the past year and a half, you know, it's just ridiculous. You know, it's, it's clearly coming from a perspective of people who don't understand what's actually going on and haven't, you know, actually looked at, you know, the full spectrum of, of the situation. But Having said that, that's a different you know, podcast. The, yeah, the, <laughs> the um, you know, in, in terms of the way Ford, not uh, actually not just Ford, but all the automakers, uh, the legacy automakers are being perceived right now is a challenge for all of them. You know, it's a challenge for Ford, but it's also been a challenge for GM and for Daimler and BMW, and, and especially as as they make this transition towards um, automated vehicles. You know, everybody is desperately trying to. Um, become perceived as technology companies. You know, I mean, that's, we've talked about this before, you know, that's why, you know, everybody go, keeps going to CES, you know, where they're showing off technologies that are five and 10 years away, you know, rather than, you know, at the auto shows where they're showing the stuff that's going on sale six months from now. Uh, you know, they're, they're all trying to change the perception of themselves. And I think one of the complaints at Ford was that um, the communication strategy at Ford was not doing a, an effective job 
at of creating that perception and in part because of that um that was dragging down the stock price because the 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 financial markets didn't were not perceiving ford in what management thought was the right light you know as as a a forward-thinking technology company and jim hackett who is taking over as um ceo uh, as of today um he's uh you know Previously, he was the CEO at Steelcase, um, and during his long tenure there, you know, they they make you know office furniture, right. and things like that. Forward thinking technology company. Well, uh, <laughs> I, I kid, I kid. <laughs> no, but I mean, during during the course of his tenure, um, the company he, the company did reshape the kinds of, the way they design offices and office furniture. You know, I can't say I entirely agree with it with the with the way offices have evolved over the last 15 years well, you, you know you going to this like open whole office? open office no yeah. i frankly i, I, hate I mean, it. you know it, it, it well it, it works for some kinds of jobs but for the kinds of jobs that that certainly that, I, that i've done in my career it's not an effective kind of approach no, but I, that's a whole other story the, the fact is he did change the way that steelcase made furniture you know the way it did things and um, he had a very good reputation as, as a leader there, you know, and then subsequently he was on the board at um, at Ford, the board of directors. Um, and then for over the past year, he was the chairman of Ford Smart Mobility uh, LLC, the division, the subsidiary they set up last year to handle a lot of this mobility services uh, uh, work that they're doing. And so, um, you know, he's he's very well thought of in Silicon Valley. Uh, I've, I've met him one time uh, at the LA auto show last November and he's, he's very highly thought of. And so, you know, he, I think he was probably a good choice to bring in at this time, but you know, the, the, the real reasons behind, um, you know, behind the departure of fields and day, you know, is, I think it really comes down to the way the company was being perceived. Yeah, there were there were certainly some operational issues and there were some other things that um, that I've heard about that you know, I, I can't verify. Uh, so I'm not going to bring them up here. But, um, you know, he, you know, he let's put it this way. Um, Fields was not um, as universally admired as Alan Mulally was. Uh, but. Overall, you know, the company was obviously in no danger of going out of business anytime soon. Which is probably a good time if you're going to have a management change to create that management change uh, versus when you're in dire straits. You know, you may at that oh, point yeah. need to stick with with people just, you know, so you don't rattle the uh, the market or the investors or, any, you know, any shareholders or anything. Uh, so. And I, I can see that, you know, and, and I can also see it over the last year, actually, um, uh, slightly on that sort of decision making side of things. Uh, General Motors has been exceptionally aggressive about sort of tightening their belt and saying, you know what, we're going to transform this company. And and I say that while also like noticing they've been kind of quiet about it to a degree as well. Like certainly we've heard the the fact that, you know, GM sold off their their Opal subsidiary. <clears throat> to PSA, um, and they've they've pulled out of uh, Russia and um, you know India, uh, India and and South Africa. So those are all like those are not small moves for G those are big things, and they've they I feel like those have been almost downplayed to a degree. Uh, maybe being inside the industry a little bit more, like you are, uh, and you know, surrounded by folks out in that that area where it is the business, uh, it's had a larger impact. But out here in in sort of you know the hinterlands, um, 
we're, we're removed from the car business a bit. Uh, th- those stories like sort of like they popped up and they, they just sort of went by. Um, but those are big aggressive moves. But, that, but they, they got the attention of the, um, the people, you know, that all of these companies are trying to appeal to, you know, which is, you know, investors and, you know, the, the financial markets, you know, that are making big bets on these companies. Now saying that they got attention, you know, I mean, certainly, you know, GM got attention from the financial markets for these moves doesn't necessarily mean that it's worked much better than Ford's strategy has worked for them uh, in that respect. I mean, you know, GM stock hasn't declined to anywhere near the degree that Ford's has, uh, but it also hasn't grown either. It's been fairly stagnant of late. And, you know, you've got this uh, David Einhorn, who is, you know, this big hedge fund manager. He's been pushing this plan for um, GM to, to create a two class stock system, you know, for the company. Uh, one class uh, that would be, uh, that would pay dividends out. And the other class would pay no dividends, but would be, you know, targeted at growth, you know, company, you know, to make it, you know, have the, have the company be more like, um, uh, like a, like a tech company and really go for big growth. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, it's really kind of a ridiculous plan because, you know, the, the dividend paying stock, you know, basically would be a way to, to raid the company's um, uh, cash position, you know, and take the cat, you know, pull the cash out of the company, you know, and for something like an automaker, There's not um, you know, the, like the, na- the nature of the business means that you need to keep a very substantial amount of cash on hand just to keep operating on a day to day basis. And like growth. And, no, no, yeah, it's and, a saturated and, and, market. And for, yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, for a car for a car company, there, you know, growth is not something that's going to happen. Period. Yeah, you know, not to not to any significant degree. You know, the overall industry is you know pretty much saturated, except for China, where there's still, you know, China and India, where there's still growth. You know, and and even the, with the growth in India, as GM has shown, it's not profitable growth. You know, it's it's growing volumes, but not really gro- making any significant amount of money. And, you know, China is the only place that's still, you know, got any significant room for growth. So, um, you know, what Einhorn is proposing, you know, would be a, a disaster for GM if they if it ever got through. Well, that is that two classes of stock that Ford set up that way, though, don't they have class A and class B? It's yeah, it's it's different, though. Uh, I mean, there's lots of companies that have multi-class stock systems. I mean, Ford's, you know, when they um, when they went public in 1956, you know, they created a class of shares that is traded publicly class a stock and then class B stock is the, sh- are the shares that are owned by the family. Um, so only the f- only members of the Ford family can own class B shares. If they, if uh, family members sell any class B shares to outside the family, they automatically get converted to class A shares. And the, the distinction between the two is that class B shares, um, while they account for about two and a half percent of the outstanding shares of Ford Motor Company, they actually represent 40 percent of the voting shares. So the family gets 40 percent of any votes that that happen from shareholders, uh, even though they only own two and a half percent of the company. Uh, yeah. And then there's there's similar kinds of things. And, you know, with a bunch of Silicon Valley companies now, uh, you know, Facebook you know, has a multi-class system where, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg you know, effectively controls 80% of all the, the votes. Um, it, 
um, Google's got a similar thing uh, so that uh, Larry, Larry Page and Sergey Brin and Eric Schmidt uh, control most of the votes. Uh, and then, in fact, when I mentioned Snap a couple of minutes ago, when Snap went public a few months back, um, they also have a two class uh, system and the the shares that are owned, only the shares that are owned by um, some of the founders, including CEO Evan Spiegel, um, have any votes at all. All of the publicly traded shares have no votes. They just they're there to pump money into the company and let exactly. you say you own this they, cool thing. Yeah, they they have no votes and no dividends because the company the company doesn't make any money. We should totally do that. People can buy wheel bearing shares. <laughs> sure, why not? You don't get a vote. We're never paying you back. But please send us money. Uh, and speaking of uh, speaking of companies that don't make any money uh, <laughs> oh. in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Hey, um, there's, there's Lyft. Yeah. Uh, so what's going on with Lyft? Uh, well, apparently um, when the when GM invested in them last year, invested five hundred million dollars in them and they did a deal for Lyft uh, to uh, use GM's uh, autonomous vehicles uh, in its fleet, you know, to develop those vehicles for, for Lyft to use. Um, apparently it was a non-exclusive deal. Um, and so while GM is continuing on with, you know, developing their autonomous bolts that they're going to put in the Lyft fleet probably sometime in 2018 uh, to begin their pilot programs, um, Lyft uh, last week also did a deal with Waymo. Um, and they're also going to be testing uh, Waymo's autonomous uh, Chrysler Pacifica minivans. So is that like controversial? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it, I mean, um, it's, it's actually probably good for Lyft. Um, I, I talked to a couple of people at GM that weren't crazy about it. Um, but, uh, you know, they, 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 off the record, you know, they said, uh, yeah, they were kind of surprised at this and they were not thrilled that Lyft was, uh, doing a deal with Waymo. Um, but it, it actually kind of makes some sense for Waymo because, you know, um, you know, for GM, you know, they were, you know, they're working on the the Chevy Bolt, you know, which is a smaller car, you know, and it's designed, you know, carry a couple of people around um, in an autonomous fashion, um, you know, and from Waymo, they're going to be getting these bigger minivans and, you know, Lyft, uh, like Uber and, and other services, they've got multiple different tiers of service, you know, so they've got, you know, their mainline you know, tier that's more like a taxi service. You know, that's, you know, usually when you order a Lyft or an Uber, like an Uber X, you know, you get a, a regular kind of car uh, to pick you up. Um, and then both of them also have these carpool style services um, that are more like kind of, kind of like, you know, mini buses, but without a fixed route. So, you know, there's Lyft line and, and Uber pool. And when you order one of those, um, you know, whichever one is on a route that's closest to where you are, will come and pick you up. And, you know, if you happen to be riding on it, you know, the vehicle could stop at any time and pick up other passengers and drop people off and can take a very non-direct route to where you want to go. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I'm guessing, uh, you know, nobody, nobody has said anything specific yet, but I, I would guess that, uh, what Lyft wants to do is have the minivans as part of their, uh, their, their Lyft line service, their, their carpooling type service uh, and test those out that way and work on the algorithms for, 
deploying, you know, different types of vehicles for different use cases, you know, depending on what, what the riders needed and, you know, what they requested at any point in time, you know, and having the vehicles in the right place, that sort of thing. So that's probably what they want to work on you know, is having different vehicle configurations to, to test out their logistics system. Well, Hey, GM doesn't make any vans, so they can complain all they want. <laughs> <laughs> you know, until they, I may guess they could put like a 15 passenger uh, Savannah. They, do they still make the Savannah? I don't know. Uh, they, yeah, they do still make the Savannah and the, the Chevy Express. See? Um, so they, they could use those. Um, probably, uh, you know, maybe a more likely scenario would be uh, to see autonomous Ford Transits um, running in there as well. Um, and, you know, it just so happens one of the. Uh, early round investors in Lyft was uh, a venture capital firm called Fontanalis, um, which is, uh, it's the, the VC firm that was founded by Bill Ford. <sighs> it just makes the head spin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the automaker is definitely smart uh, to, to get involved with it. Um, I, I still look at the predictions and, um, uh, you know, the, the, given how long it's going to take, um, what are we going to see out of these, like these investments that they're making? That's, I guess, if I'm a Ford shareholder, and given the shakeup today, and this to say, like, hey, you guys need to get on the ball and make these investments in these companies. Like, what can I expect to start seeing from this? You know, this, this partnership well, with Waymo. What do they get out of it? Um. <laughs> For for the uh, for the investors or for the automakers, yeah. Uh, you know, for for somebody like FCA, you know, for Fiat Chrysler, um, you know, it's a market for you know some of their vehicles. You know, I could see. You know, what what's interesting is you know the way their their current relationship is with Waymo, uh, FCA, you know, event effectively shifts from being um, uh, an automaker to being a tier one supplier to Waymo. Yeah, you know, so they're they're selling vehicle platforms to Waymo that Waymo installs their sensors and and control, uh, you know, their computers and their and their software on, um, you know, and it just plugs it in. Um, so FCA effect effectively becomes just a tier one supplier, whereas you know in the past they've always been the OEM and companies like Bosch and Continental and and Delphi and ZF and all you know Denso and all these other guys, you know, they were their tier one suppliers. Um, so now, you know, they shift to becoming a tier one. So, you know, for a company like FCA that hasn't really been developing much in the way of autonomous vehicles or, you know, even, you know, particularly advanced technology vehicles, uh, you know, it's, it's a potentially a way to stay in business. Well, there is that. I mean, if you're in the car business, you don't want to go out of the car business unless you have uh, a good, <laughs> good, good, good sideline. Um, Waymo also got. There, there's a little bit uh, of trouble with with Waymo going on too, right? Like to them and Uber, uh, sort of yeah, suing each other <laughs> still. Yeah, they're yeah. I mean, their lawsuit is is ongoing. Um, you know, Uber or Waymo's suing Uber, um, and um, Anthony Lewandowski, who was a former Waymo engineer who left early in 2016, along with about 14,000 or allegedly with about 14,000 Waymo technical documents uh, that he took with him when he formed a new company a few weeks later called auto, which a few weeks after that was purchased by Uber for $600 million. 
Um, Got to like that kind of turnaround. Um, yeah. And so, you know, in the first major ruling in the case, the, the judge in the case who actually is a surprisingly technically oriented judge, uh, a guy named uh, William Alsup. Um, he, he this is the same judge who a few years ago when Oracle was suing Google over using Java and Android um, actually taught himself to. Uh, write code in Java. He learned how to write Java code uh, so that he could understand what the technical arguments were in the case. Um, and so, you know, this, this guy is, this guy's no dummy. Um, and he, you know, he, in the first major ruling in the case, he ruled that uh, Uber wanted to move the case to arbitration. So it would be in private. So it wouldn't be in the public eye. Um, and he rejected that ruling and he issued a partial injunction against Uber that, you know, saying that they could not do anything on their autonomous driving program using any information that may have been uh, purloined from from Waymo. Um, and they also had to return any documents that they might have. Um, and the other thing is he also referred the case, uh, to the justice department, which has already been, uh, investigating Uber for some other things. Um, you know, so for you know, everything, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, now, now they're also looking into this case as well, you know, to see if there's some criminal charges that might be relevant against Uber well, that whole, and, and or Lewandowski. Yeah. I mean, that whole thing, uh, just seemed really sketchy. Uh, like, uh, Lewandowski had the plan to leave um, cooked up on his own. And he, you know, while he was still working at one company, he had started the other and was taking di- like just there's something sketchy there, regardless well, of whether well, it's. Just, you know. uh, remember, all this is alleged at right. this point. There, uh, by Waymo. I'm, I'm alleging that <laughs> there's something. Sketchy. Not, nothing. Nothing has been proven in court yet. So <clears throat> from from what it seems like is this is what uh, this is what has been reported. By Waymo. Yes. What what I have read about it seems like there is some some sketchy behavior going on. Whether or not it's, it's actually true, I guess we will see play out in the it, court of law. Anyway, it it, cer- it certainly doesn't look good for for Uber or Anthony Lewandowski and his uh, colleagues. Yeah. Uh, what you know, which is why you know why a, a bunch of people have been uh, jumping ship from Uber. In recent months, uh, including I think we talked last time about uh, Sharif Markby uh, leaving Uber. Um, he was he was one of the people running their autonomous driving program. He was a senior VP of uh, yeah. uh, technology there, uh, former Ford engineer. And, that, you know, those so. people are going to land at the other companies that are just, you know, sort of getting stood up. The biggest among them is, is Lyft is sort of the biggest, you know, largest, most direct competitor. But, man, there's there's a lot of, of companies working on this this autonomous stuff. Um, I, I still think it's funny, like, we are not going to have this by 2023, you know, like. Well, <laughs> we'll have some stuff, but we're not all going to be, you know, it's, it's, it's the modern idea of the jetpack, right? Like it's it's not going to just all at once just happen you know yeah no yeah i i I totally agree but not 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 everyone feels that way um the uh the conference i happened to be at last week in uh in california um connected and autonomous vehicles conference one of the uh speakers there was a gentleman named uh, rahul sonad or sonad uh who is the ceo and co-founder of of test loop uh which is uh 
a Southern California company that provides inner city transportation services using a fleet of Teslas. Um, so it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of like, uh, imagine, uh, like an inner city bus service, you know, around Southern California and, you know, in like Santa Barbara and LA and Pasadena and Palm Springs, things like that, except, you know, using model X's and model S's. Um, and, um, one of the uh, more absurd things that he said um, during a panel that he was on was he said, in five years, there's only going to be two car companies and everything's going to be autonomous. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so you, that's, that's, that's one perspective on this. You a, have to a ridiculous perspective. But yeah. yeah. I mean, good for you. Hang yeah. on to your convictions. Uh, you know, another thing that seems kind of uh, like it's not going to happen, but maybe it could uh, is conservatives in England. Uh, we were talking about this a little bit before the, the podcast started. Um, conservatives in England are considering banning internal combustion cars. Uh, by Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, the, the party of Margaret Thatcher, um, you know, uh, who, you know, have been notorious for wanting to privatize everything and get rid of regulations and, you know, much, much like a certain party in this country, uh, much like her uh, counterpart Reagan here back, uh, her contemporary wanted yeah. to, yeah. Um, you know, one of the, uh, planks in their platform, there's, there's currently an election campaign going on, general election campaign going on in the UK. And one of the conservative party platform planks is uh, to ban all internal combustion engine cars from uh, British roads by 2050. Um, and uh, says allowances could be made could be made for classic cars, but that cars purchased new would have to conform to the the uh, legislation. So they would have to be zero emissions. I mean, that, can, can you imagine the Republicans proposing something like that in this country? Uh no, given how in bed they are with the, the fossil fuel industry and how the fossil fuel industry, uh, for all its bluster, has not uh, done possibly the smart thing and started to invest. I mean, they have to a degree, but, uh, you know, if I'm a fossil fuel company, I'm really going to invest heavily in alternative energies like wind and solar and you know battery technology. And no, we've we've got different companies doing that. I mean, to a yeah. degree, they're investing in those things. I get it. But uh, it it seems like they should sweat that whole, like, dependence on oil thing a little less if they're, you know, branching out into other energy, if they become an energy company versus a fossil fuel company. But anyway, um, yeah, it, it doesn't. Do they understand where batteries and electricity comes from? <laughs> Well, in, increasingly in, in the UK, you know, the electricity is coming uh, particularly from wind. Um, you know, most of the coal fired plants have already shut down there. Um, and, you know, so they're using natural gas and, and wind as the primary sources of electricity there now. So is there is there natural gas coming? I'm assuming it's like North Sea because that's where the oil production is Pro around there. Like. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, North Sea or, or imported from other sources. Yeah. And I don't I don't think they have much onshore natural gas in the UK. Yeah. Oh, they got peat bogs, though. Mm. That's true. They do have that. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, it, it'd be interesting to see how that plays out on that sort of small scale, like with. Uh, and I say small just because we're you know, the United States and we're huge. Um, but it, it would be an interesting experiment, I suppose. I I, I don't. I don't know what that would mean for an, a nation to to ban that. Like, where are they even going to 
to find the vehicles to fill the the sales pipeline at that point. I, well, man. if you if if you if you believe uh, some studies, uh, like one that came from a, a Stanford economist a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, ninety percent of vehicles will be eliminated by twenty thirty uh, with autonomous vehicles. Remember what I said about bullshit. <laughs> yeah there there is there is something in the air in uh in california i'm, I'm not sure what it is it's it's not i'm pretty sure it's not the smog no it's uh, the smog <laughs> yes yeah absolutely uh, uh, it's definitely the smog yeah i no i mean, I mean what, what would that what would that how how is it supposed to work is it just like is there any more detail to this or just like um i, I think I think, you know, the, the plan would be, um, you know, at some point probably, and you know, the UK is certainly not the only country looking at doing this, excuse me, um, you know, Denmark and, and some of the other, uh, countries there, you know, are and Norway, you know, would like to, um, eliminate ICEs, you know, certainly by the mid to late 2020s, you know, by 2030. And, you know, if you, if you could shift over completely, you know, to, to EVs, um, for new, you know, as for new vehicles by 2030, um, then, you know, it's not inconceivable that almost all the cars on the road, you know, as you replace the old fleet, almost everything on the road could be ICEs by 2050. Um, whether or not we can actually get there remains to be seen, you know, whether, you know, whether we can do that economically, you know, the, the advantage that countries in Europe do have, over here um, is, you know, high fuel, you know, because of the, the way fuel is taxed over there at much higher rates, you know, their, their fuel costs for gasoline and diesel are much higher than they are here, which, you know, has always uh, helped to incentivize consumers to buy more efficient vehicles. And, you know, so, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, the price differential, um, you know, is not going to be as huge there, you know, and it, you know, it actually makes a lot more economic sense there to buy an EV than it does here, you know, where gas is, you know, two twenty, two thirty a gallon still. That's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it's, it's actually, you know, more possible in the UK or other parts of Europe to do this than it would be to do it here unless you had some significant changes in fuel tax policies. Well, you know what? Far be it from me to argue for doing things the way they've always been done because that that's a pet peeve anyway. So, um, yeah. All right. Go ahead, Britain. We'll watch. <laughs> yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Uh, you know, maybe 2050 is a long way away too. Who knows what's going to yeah. happen between now and then? Yeah. yeah. Lots of things can change. And, yeah. you know, act, actually, you know, by 2050, you know, I don't, I think it's not inconceivable that the majority of cars on the road. And in fact, I think it's, I think it's quite likely that the majority of the cars on the road by that point will be electrified. They will not be ICEs. But that well, oh, so electrified, like plug-in hybrids or electrified, totally electrified. Like uh, I think, I think by that point, probably most of them will be totally, you know, either battery electric or fuel cell. Huh? All right, you heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> so have or we? At least most recently. <laughs> have we had any um, any feedback at all? I know we've been kind of quiet, so I didn't know if there's. Yeah, any... no, I, uh, I didn't see anything. Um, we do have a couple of interviews that I recorded last week uh, during that conference. Uh, one with the chief product officer at Turo, uh, and they're a company that's got some 
got an interesting uh, kind of business model for peer-to-peer car rentals or peer-to-peer car sharing. You know, so basically you can, you know, if you've got times when you're not using your car, you can make it available on Turo for other people to rent out. Yeah, our um, our occasional uh, social media guy, Dan, tried that out. Um, and and he was recounting his experience with it. So uh, it'd be interested to hear what's what they have to say, like, you know, straight from the horse's mouth. Yeah, so uh, let's run that one right now. It's about 10 minutes. Uh, and then we'll come back and introduce the last uh, uh, interview and then wrap it up. All right. Okay, so I'm um, talking with Tom Wang, who's the Chief Product Officer of Turo. Um, Tom, uh, give me a little little overview for our listeners that are not familiar with Turo, what, what it is. Sure. Uh, Turo is the largest uh, peer-to-peer car sharing marketplace. And by that, I mean people uh, renting cars from other people. Um, there are a billion cars on the planet, and we're trying to make better use of them. So, uh, how, you know... How does this work? I mean, can anybody who's got a car just sign up for Turo and and make their car available for others to use? Or um, do you, is it typically individuals or is it more, you know, people that are doing this as a business um, to, you know, to buying fleets of cars and doing it through uh, through your platform? Um, Well, people do it for different reasons, but by and large, it starts as an individual. Um, We do have eligibility requirements for cars, so we don't allow any car in, but most cars uh, are are eligible if um, they meet our trust and safety standards and our mileage standards. Um, But most people just start with the idea that they either um, want to they want to take advantage of the marketplace in order to generate income to because um, cars are expensive they're the second largest uh, asset class usually in most people's uh, portfolio other than their home and uh, if you're paying a thousand dollars for example uh, every month uh, for a Tesla that's a lot of money um, you could earn that money back um, by renting your Tesla out uh, for seven days out of uh, 30 uh, days in a month and so a lot of people start with that. And in terms of what you said, the power owners, um, people who host multiple cars, they all started with one car and then they, they got hooked, um, uh, similar to an eBay phenomenon. So how, how, does the, how does the process work? I mean, how does your platform work? Um, does an owner just go and sign up and um, then go from there? I mean, what, what's the process? Uh, yes. Um, I mean, there's a lot of education um, um, on our part um, and we guide them through that. Um, and help them understand um, how they should price their car. And we uh, use machine learning to help uh, understand the best way to price the vehicle. We uh, tell them about what helps them rent the car out, which are great, beautiful photos, great, um, vivid description, and most importantly, the owner's behavior in terms of responding to the inbound request for their car. And so we try to set them up for success. And one nice thing is our success is tied to their success. So we're both motivated. They want to rent their car out for money we want that too i think you know for for most people that aren't familiar with it you you might be they might be concerned about you know letting strangers drive their car um what 
you know, what what happens if a car gets damaged? Who's who? How does that work out? Uh, do, is the owner's insurance responsible for covering that, or no? Um, we uh, we're thrilled to have a great partner, Liberty Mutual, who provides our uh, insurance, and that's for both the traveler and, of course, for the owner. Um, and for the owners, um, we take care of it for the owner. Um, and for the traveler, they can choose what sort of insurance package that they want. Um, we screen our travelers to make sure um, that they meet our trust and safety standards. And, um, you know, we're a responsible company that's been doing it for a long time. I rent my car out. And I will say the first time I rented my car out, it it's, it's an interesting experience. And then the car comes back. You see the money show up in your bank account, and then the next time you rent out your car, you're like, "This this works." I mean, like the like anything, the first time you try it, uh, something new. But um, I think our success and our trajectory shows that um, it's worth it. So you, you mentioned screening the, the travelers, the renters. Yeah. Um, what does that involve? I mean, do you uh, check, you know, get their driver's license number and check their their driving record to make sure they've got a reasonably clean driving record, or, or how, how's that? We, we're constantly evolving and growing in terms of our trust and safety standards. It's another area where machine learning can be so helpful in terms of identifying all the different data points because our community is so important to us. Um, and like I said, um, we are, uh, we're in league with the owner in this regard. We don't want anything to go wrong <laughs> because um, you know we're, we're on the hook for it. And so it's very important to us to have a trust, a, a, a safe community. And there's a lot. Uh, to build trust on both sides of the of the marketplace in terms of um, the reputation system, um, connections with Facebook. The reputation system is a huge investment for us because uh, the reputation system helps ensure that in a marketplace you can constantly give feedback to us, private feedback, public feedback, ratings on both sides so we can constantly understand what's happening and, um, and react accordingly. So if someone wants to rent a car through Toro, yep. um, what, uh, what, what's the process? I mean, you know, typically, you know, if you go to Hertz or Avis or something, you know, you're, you're flying into an airport and you'll, um, you know, you go to the counter and they pick up and give you the keys and you go get your car and drive off. What's the process with Turo, you know, when an individual owner or, you know, a, an owner of a fleet, you know, one of your power users, power owners um, is renting out cars? Well, um, I should uh, annotate your version of what happens when you arrive at the airport because it's not exactly uh, as you maybe a hundred percent of uh, what's uh, what you portrayed. You know, they go to the airport, then they go to the van that well, they get on, then they I, go I to over the line. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, the reason I say that is because it's important yeah. differentiation with Turo. Turo is a peer-to-peer -peer service, and so someone delivers the car to you. Okay. And so um, you uh, book the car online. We're an online service uh, from the ground up. And then the, um, the owner uh, coordinates with you, um, and they bring the car to you, and then they meet you, and they give you the keys, and you drive off. And then when you come back... They do the same. And so we believe that the, this experience that you were talking about has been a little bit stagnant for a long time. And so we're sort of revitalizing it with the creativity of our owners. And I know our CEO rents his car out too. And sometimes people, because he's got a very nice car, people rent it out for a special occasion. And he, like a lot of owners, will provide some champagne if it's for a wedding anniversary and things that uh, you would never see in a traditional rental experience. And we see that uh, people 
people want to have, uh, you know, they want that they want those five stars for the reputation system, and they want to provide a, a good, uh, positive experience. You, you mentioned uh, earlier during your presentation about you know some uh, some uh, owners uh, actually using uh, multiple different you know parallel services to give a more complete experience to yeah. uh, renters. Can you describe that a little bit? Um, well, um, one thing they do is after they drop off the car, sometimes they use Lyft and Uber to to, to get home. Um, but I think what we're seeing is some cross pollination with uh, home sharing. Um, so Airbnb, sometimes people will list their Turo on Airbnb or uh, vice versa. And so we see some of that cross pollination with uh, the sharing economy. And it's very exciting to see that that happen so naturally. And uh, I think you, you also mentioned uh, that in some cases, you know, uh, the, the owners of the Turo vehicles are also driving on Uber or Lyft. And so they may <laughs> they may uh, give take, you know, in, instead of somebody having to take a ride somewhere, they'll, they'll go pick them up from the airport. Yeah, I, I did. There, I was telling you an experience. Uh, there's a Portland community event. We have community events all over the country. We're in the U.S. and Canada. And at this event, um, one of these power owners were telling me that he drives for Uber and he um, he will dr people who rent the car he will pick them up as an Uber drive them uh, Uber driver he will drive them to the the Turo car which is waiting at the Airbnb where they're renting and so it's a, a stacking of sharing you know, <laughs> yeah. so just one last thing yep. um, what what kind of what what's the typical cost for somebody that wants to rent a vehicle through Turo yep. you know if you could maybe give me a couple of approximate price points because I think it varies uh, regionally. Yeah. Uh, but you know, for you know, say you know, for somebody to get a typical midsize sedan uh, or you know, compact SUV versus a luxury car, what what kind of prices would they be paying? I mean, they they're just uh, one way to think about it is just take what you see at a traditional rental car company and just think 30, 35 percent off, um, and that's generally the price range we're at. But um, you know, it really depends. If you're renting a, a Tesla Model X, um, then that's something you just can't get anywhere else, so there's not a, a, a reference. But um, usually, um, we're, we're quite a bit uh, cheaper, with with few exceptions. But you know, we've we've looked at this data quite a bit, and if you look at overall in the U.S., we're about 30, 35 percent cheaper. And roughly, how many uh, people are? Uh, making their vehicles available through uh, through Turo right now. Uh, as of 2016, so we haven't released 2017, uh, there were over 120,000 cars that have been listed on uh, Turo, and it continues to grow. Um, it's the largest peer-to-peer -peer, um, fleet, and uh, at our current trajectory, it'll be the largest car-sharing service uh, in the world of any kind. Great. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. So uh, chief product officer at Turo talking about uh, how their business works. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, they, they have a, a partnership with, with Liberty Mutual Insurance. Um, so, you know, one, one of the issues I think, you know, with, you know, if you're going to make your car available to rent is, you know, how, how do you handle, you know, if the car is damaged or anything like that? You know, I think, you know, that would be, that would certainly be something that would concern me, you know, before letting strangers drive my personal car. Um, you know, and so they've they've got this program with Liberty Mutual um, to actually provide the insurance on the cars when they are being rented. You know, so when when you're driving your own car, you know, you're covered by your insurance. But when it's on the, the, Turo, syst the Turo system, it's covered under Turo's uh, insurance pl insurance plan. Um, and, um, you know, so any damage that happens, they take care of it and they handle, you know, all the 
all the stuff. Basically, you just have to make the car available and then then you actually have to deliver it as well to whoever's renting it huh. and then pick it up. That's, that's so, interesting. Maybe I should do that with the Crown Victoria. Just sits. Yeah, well, why, why not? You know, I'm sure there's more. plenty plenty of people that would want to rent that off you. Probably not, but you can't you can't hurt it. Well, I think I think, you know, the next time I go uh, go on a business trip, I probably will give Toro a try just to see what the experience is like. Um, what have you have you heard anything about it? Like how what's it what's it like otherwise from from reports in the field? Well, um, you know, we, we both know uh, Alex Roy, right? And yeah. you know, he's he's a big proponent of Turo. He he really likes it. He's used it and, and really likes it. Um, I haven't spoken to many other people that are, you know other than uh, uh, Dan Mosqueda that that uh, have tried it. Um, you know, they've apparently got over a hundred thousand people. You know, that are you know making their vehicles available, and they're you know they're doing quite a bit of business. So you know, we'll see how that. Uh, uh, that works out over the long haul. All right. And I'm sure I'm sure we'll see other competitors as well. Yeah, if there's a buck to be made, somebody else will come in and do it. Um, yeah. all right. So what's our and next then, interview? The next one is Peter Rawlinson, who is currently the uh, chief technology officer at uh, Lucid Motors, uh guy behind the uh, the Lucid Air. Uh Peter was previously at Tesla and worked on the development of cars like the Model S. Um, and, um, he did a presentation last week and, you know, we've, we've talked about the lucid air before and, you know, in terms of its, some of its technical stuff. Um, but he got during the presentation last week, um, he got into more stuff about, uh, you know, their, their business plan, um, and, you know, talked about, you know, some of the concepts around sharing, you know, one of, one of the interesting things around the whole mobility service idea, um, is, you know, it's not all going to be just like automated versions of what you think of today with Uber. You know, there's going to be a wide variety of different types of services at different price points. And I, I actually wrote a post for the Navigant Research blog where I work uh, that uh, should be up in the next uh, couple of days, I hope. Um, you know, it talks about this, you know, it talks about the idea of some of the different services that are different types of services that are possible. Um but, um, you know, Peter talked a bit about that and some of the other stuff they're doing uh, with autonomy on the, the Lucid Air. Uh, so let's run that one now. All right. Peter Rollins, uh, CTO of Lucid Motors. Um, you did a presentation here at the Connected and Autonomous Vehicles Conference. And among the things you talked about um, around uh, the uh, with the Lucid Air, um, you, you showed a quadrant um, uh, during your presentation uh, with four different uh, areas uh, for vehicles owned and driven, uh, owned and autonomous, uh, shared and driven, and shared and autonomous. And um, I was curious about how, um, as, as part of your business looking forward, how you see all of that fitting into Lucid's business model. Uh, obviously, you know, as a as a very high performance vehicle, uh, it, it's clearly intended to be driven by owners. But do you also um, see this as a vehicle to be used as part of shared mobility services? Um, and and how how does that all work out? I, I think the, the 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 theme of today's talk has been just how disruptive Lucid Air can be as a new vehicle platform and architecture. It can disrupt existing segments of the market in terms of what those cars are and it can also disrupt usage patterns and can be used in a myriad of ways. There's going to be people like me who likes a high performance car to drive and can afford to do that 
and probably will by that kind of traditional ownership sense. It's got a steering wheel, it's got very advanced suspension, it's a fine driving machine, it'll do 200 miles an hour, not that I can use it on public roads, but it's got that performance. And so that's very appealing as a driving machine. Um, I think that because it's got this incredible space concept, and it's got rear doors which open fully 90 degrees with great rear door apertures and great rear legroom. It's quite transformative. Yeah, I experienced that when yeah. we started in New great, York. Great, Well, So therefore, I think it's super relevant to ride market. Now, in the past, a car was a great driving car or a great riding car. You've got something like a BMW, which is good to drive, or Lexus is good to ride in. Uh, it's either or. With Lucid Air, it's really going to break that mold. It's going to break that age-old contradiction, that paradox between the two, with our active suspension as well. So we can have great ride quality. So it's super relevant for ride-sharing. Now, we don't see ride-sharing as commoditized at all. We see it as very differentiated, just as your choice of hotel, choice of meal at a restaurant, choice of um, uh, airline ticket is a very differentiated experience. Just because it's a transient experience, you don't own that airplane. Uh You can choose between economy, economy premium, business, or first. You never own the plane. But you discriminate. Mm-hmm. So surely if you're on a ride show, you can discriminate. If it's, if it's a hot date, you might want to take out a lucid air. If it's a, just a, a, commu- a grunge crum- commute around town, you might want to take something more commoditized. Right. So, so then we've got this new advent of shared ownership. Now, this is a really interesting one because that can tease out hybridized ownership models. For example, if you've got a budget of $35,000, and you can't stretch to the $52,500 price of a base model Lucid Air, but you really want a Lucid Air because it's such a cool thing. And with the state incentive, we recently announced the base model price is 60000 It's down to 52500 with the, 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 the federal uh-huh. credit. So how do you get that from your $35,000 car that you could really afford to the $52,500 Lucid Air? Well, maybe if you one day of the week... You let that car be shared. You maybe don't use it on Sundays or whatever. You can actually use the the revenue that that generates to pay for the monthly installments of the difference. Uh So you could actually have this hybridized model where instead of owning a $35,000 car 100% of the time, you could use a a Lucid Air for five straight six days a week. And that could work. You could have some really interesting hybrid models. And it might not be as prescriptive as that. It's like when you go on holiday, you you let it go for a couple of weeks. So I think you're going to have some very different type of hybrid ownership, hybrid use models. And then then there's the whole world of ride share. And what do we do? Because we see ourselves as a service company, an advanced mobility company, as much as a traditional car company. We've got a car, but we're going to enter this arena. Well, you know, if you look at the ride share companies, they've got apps. We've got a car. You know, you could, we could do ride share with, with Lucid Air. All these are opportunities. But, you know, I've got to be careful what, what I promise, because all this depends upon successful foundations of the house, mm-hmm. and the foundations of our house are a faultless execution of the lucid air of the car. Once we've got that, then we can look at all these future opportunities based upon those foundations. Sure, and obviously at this stage, you know, you're still a good uh, year and a half away from starting production. Two years. Yeah, two yeah. years. Yes. Um, it, 
But do you foresee, um, as one of the things that Lucid could potentially be doing, is actually running running a, a mobility service using your vehicles, or would it? Are you more more thinking along the lines of partnerships, or or making your selling your vehicles to other services? Like, I think uh, all of those are possible. You could do a hybridized. You could sell your vehicle with an agreement of a revenue from that partnership. Mm-hmm. I think you could do absolute versions of those or hybrid models okay. of those. So, and you're, you're open to all the possibilities. Totally, at this point. totally. I think it's going to be a very inspiring and interesting landscape. And what we're doing right now is we. We, we, we can't analyze to death what the landscape is going to be like in two years' time. What we've got is a car which is very differentiated from anything else out there. Uh-huh. And it's so eminently well-suited for this new landscape. And by putting ourselves in the cr- on the crest of this wave, it's like catching this wave with Lucid Air. We're on the, going to be on the crest of this wave. Lucid Air is going to go into production just when all this stuff is building up to a crescendo. We're going to be right in there in this melee. And all I can say is we'll make the appropriate, hopefully wisely judged commercial decisions, but we'll have this fantastic attribute, this car which is so well suited to this new landscape. Uh, who, it's very difficult to predict... Yeah. what opportunities there will be. I mean, you know, rideshare came from nowhere. Uh-huh. It's like a social phenomenon. Nobody predicted it. It's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a stroke of genius. It's like just in the, in the last six, seven years. Suddenly, yeah. from nowhere. So, I, you know, I maybe nothing like that will happen, but it, something like that again might happen in the next two years. We've got a product which really puts us right there in the forefront of this new landscape, and then we can make the decisions on that. Okay. Um, one other thing I wanted to uh, to touch on um, was just about the uh, you, you you were answering a question for someone else about the battery pack. Yeah. And you were talking about the cooling system and yeah. the battery pack. Yeah. And I wonder if you could elaborate on that cooling system. You you referred to it as a uh, you know, talking about the water glycol cooling, yeah. and then you uh, referred to the dry pack system that yeah. allows you to get more to pack in more cell density yes. better energy density in yes. the full pack yes. Yes. can you elaborate well, a little we, bit well, a little bit some of it's proprietary and I, I have to be careful what I say okay. but um, some companies choose to cool the cells from their sides so you put all the cells together and you try to get heat out the side of the cell mm-hmm. actually that is not a great place to cool a cell because heat doesn't like to travel outwards on a battery cell. It likes to travel lengthwise. Along, along the axis yes, of the cell. And in fact, generally speaking, it's very much more conductive along its axis. And it's quite insulated in its ability to travel across the cell. Okay. So if you try to cool it from its side, it's not the, 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 a great place to start. And also, you put all this cooling in amongst the cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, so you can't get the cells in. And if you can get the heat out of the ends, you don't have to put all these cooling pipes in amongst the cells, in where all the electric bits are. You can keep where all the electric parts are, nice and dry, away from the water, and get the heat out beautifully along the axis of the cell, and you can get all the cells closer together. And you can point them all in one way, away from the car, so if they vent in a fire, they're burning away from the car. And these are these are these are very elementary, almost obvious steps. But to the best of my knowledge, this is breakthrough stuff. 
Right, yeah, I, don't, I haven't no, seen any other no, cylindrical pack um, architected quite that way. Reason, so, reason, uh, in, a, in a simplified form, uh, a simplified way of describing it, instead of the water jackets being around the cylinders uh, like they would be in, in an engine, the, essentially your water jackets are sandwiched on top and the, the cells are standing up in between the water jackets. Yes, with yes the exactly. And actually, even on an engine, if you look at where the, most of the heat is at the cylinder head, so there's mm-hmm. more water in the cylinder head, isn't there? Right. There's the jackets around the cylinders are smaller, even right. an internal combustion engine. Uh, but, but you're absolutely right in terms of your um, uh, summary. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and by putting these little small logical steps in place, we have a pack which is easier to make as well because we don't mix in loads of strange... So we don't it's have to have... All, well, we don't have to have all these water connections inside the pack like a science project, which is mass-produced. Right. Our pack is more productionized mm-hmm. like, and productionizable. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Peter. I really appreciate it. Thank great you. to talk to you thank as you. always. Great, great. Okay. And and then I think that's it for this week, right? Uh, yeah, I don't have anything. I don't have anything else interesting to say. Some might argue I haven't had anything interesting to say for the <laughs> entire show. <laughs> um, so well, they they are clearly wrong. Well, you, you thanks. You're too kind. Um, on that note, yeah, though, I am, but that's beside the point. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm lying to you, Dan. Um, but in the meantime, since we haven't had any uh, feedback for a little while, feel free to hit us up. We are on Facebook. We are on uh, Twitter. Uh, and uh, there's an email, which I don't remember. But, um, yeah. It's uh, wheelbearingscast at gmail.com. See, there it is. And if you go to wheelbearings.media, you can find the links to all of that stuff. Uh, the the Twitter and the email and, and all the other stuff. All right, and you can subscribe to the show. You know, make sure you subscribe in your favorite uh, podcatcher app so you don't miss an episode. Everything you know, it'll just show up automatically every time we put one out. Yeah, and you know what? I'd actually really like to hear from folks about uh, sort of areas of coverage that they feel like we are um, we're missing out on, or they would like us to sort of dig into and comment on, knowing our particular uh, focus. So, uh, yeah. Toss us some uh, some thoughts and suggestions, uh, some kudos, and uh, you know some criticism if you have it, and uh, we'll go from there. All right, thanks everybody. Talk to you next time. Night. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.